Welcome back to another episode of Our Seven Neighbors, a new seven-episode podcast brought to you by the Interreligious Institute at Chicago Theological Seminary. This podcast will bring you a story, an interview, and a conversation to make you and us better neighbors, no matter your life stance or belief. My name is Kim Schultz, and I am your host. Thanks so much for listening. So glad to have you here. Today's episode is called Confronting the Hate. Big stuff. Lots of it in our country and communities right now. We have three guests for this podcast who have experienced racial, ethnic, and religious bias and are fighting on it by working to make the world a better place for all. Cool, right? Our guests include Abdul Jabbar, a Rohingya refugee resettled in Chicago. Madiha Hussein, a Muslim woman working with an organization called Muslim Advocates. And Bayan Islamic Graduate School President Jihad Turk. It's a good one. So let's get started. Abdul Jabbar, known as AJ, is a Rohingya refugee living in Chicago. Now, for those who don't know, the Rohingya genocide is a series of ongoing persecutions by the Myanmar government against the Muslim minority Rohingya people. The suffering is great, and the awareness? Small. Chicago is home to the most Rohingya refugees in the whole United States, with just over 1,600 Rohingyans here. This population is extremely vulnerable, as most refugees do not speak English, and because many have only recently begun to settle in the United States, there is no pre-existing diaspora that can help provide support. The Rohingya Cultural Center, located in the South Asian neighborhood of Devon Avenue in Chicago, provides that much-needed help to help fill in those gaps and help these new Americans. We were lucky enough to speak with one of them. Here's AJ. Hi, my name is Abdul Jabbar. I'm Anullah. I'm a Rohingya, ethnically. I was born in Burma, and uh, when I was 12 years old, I uh, migrated to Malaysia. I spent my childhood there, like almost 20 years. And uh, in 2012, I resettled to the U.S. I'm living in Chicago, state of Illinois, with my family. I have a newborn baby boy. My baby boy's name is uh, Afzal. Afzal Jabbar, and uh, nickname is AJ, similar like to me. My life is very good in Chicago. I never had this kind of uh, freedom in my life because uh, when I was bo- I was when where I was born there, that place was very 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 uh, discrimination place, and then uh, persecution. We face persecution, but in in Chicago in the US. My life is very wonderful, and uh, I uh, I feel like I was a newborn baby here. Sometimes I feel sad when I'm thinking about my my country and my my people who are suffering in Burma. The Rohingya Rohingya crisis is uh, I mean it's still ongoing on. The genocide is still taking place, and uh, in in Arkan State, in my my birthplace. And even though uh, our Rohingya is still suffering everywhere, even in 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 Bangladesh, in Malaysia, and then uh, in also Indonesia, everywhere except uh, who are really settled to the third country, like uh, U.S. or other country. But for people who are not resettled to third country, who are living in neighbor country, they are suffering. Even in the current situation in Malaysia, 
their hate speech taking place in Malaysia against Rohingya people. And then uh, in Bangladesh also, our people suffering with many things. And in, in Burma, our people facing genocide still. And um, still people are killing and, and houses burning down. And, uh, you know, it's a lot of things, uh, things happening. People doesn't know. Uh, a world doesn't know. I have a family who are living in uh, in, in Bangladesh and uh, also in Burma. One of my sister, my relative, and my uncles are still in Burma. And one sister and my mom in Bangladesh. And uh, uh, recently I contact with my sister. They are uh, facing some uh, hard situation because of COVID-19 lockdown and um, the financial problem and they are not able to move anywhere and also you know no health care benefit for them so there is a uh, one more concern too i have been uh, separated with my mom from since i was 12 years old he's been uh, i'm now 32 years i mean 34 years so it's uh, like uh, 22 years now i didn't see her uh, my, I, I wish I can go hang her one, one, one times. Currently, I'm working with uh, our community center since last year, and I'm helping our people who need help uh, with the benefit, state benefit, like social work. And it's even even the, with the lockdown, I'm uh, I'm helping uh, to our people. I went to center helping for application for state benefit and employment benefit and other paperwork. And I'm still continue doing and supporting our community in Chicago. My life is different now and before because uh, when I was in Burma, I was living in fear, fear of fear of life, fear of everything. Because uh, when I left my country, that times uh, the military started uh, uh, taking uh, arresting the youth, the Rohingya youth and taken away from their family. That is the reason my mom asked me to leave with my uncles. And then uh, when I arrived in Malaysia, with uh, crossing to the Bangladesh and Thailand and arriving in Malaysia, the same problem I face in Malaysia because I'm not a uh, documented uh, immigrant there. I was holding only UNICEF card as a refugee. And I, I face a lot of challenging uh, in Malaysia. I have been arrested 10 times in Malaysia. Uh, each time I was uh, deported to Thailand only twice. Uh, I was released um, in Malaysia before I came into US. So uh, it's big difference. Uh, my life was uh, in, in, Malaysia, in Malaysia and the US a big difference because I never had this kind of freedom, this kind of freedom movement in Malaysia. My life was in fear in Malaysia because uh, uh, we are not recognized as a refugee there. And um, there is uh, no respect I get from the, uh, from the, some local people and also authorities that I have now in here. That is a big a difference. Uh, it's very surprise for me, surprise for me in living in Chicago because diversity we have in here, and so a lot of uh, I mean different peoples, different ethnic city, especially I'm living in Divan area, West Regis Park, was is a very 
mean, different communities here. I mean, look like a lot of different people from India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and you know, Jews, Muslim, black, white, African, Asian. So uh, it's very, um, I'm very happy here living in Chicago, very surprised for me. And when I first arrived in in uh, uh, O'Hare Airport, I was, I feel like uh, I'm, I was very excited and I pray to to God that uh, to give this uh, opportunity in my life. So I was like, I was newborn baby here. And then, yeah, you know, I feel very excited and happy. And this is my home. Uh, this is my home. I already give up my uh, citizen tube from Burma. I mean, this is my home. This is my country. So the, my home is in Chicago. My country is the U.S. So I'm now, I, my, I myself consider as a Rohingya American. The Rohingyan Cultural Center is in desperate need of financial help due to the pandemic and, well, you know, bigotry. If you are in a position to help, please find their website on our website and at the end of the show, as well as in our show notes. More on that later. Another organization doing great work is Muslim Advocates. Based in Washington, D.C., they work in the courts, in the halls of power, and in communities to halt hate and bigotry in its tracks. I was grateful to spend some time talking with Medea Ahussein, the Special Counsel for Anti-Muslim Bigotry. Let's listen in. My name is Madiha Ahussein, and I'm the Special Counsel for Anti-Muslim Bigotry at Muslim Advocates. And I'll just briefly share that Muslim Advocates is a national civil rights organization based in Washington, D.C., working in the courts, in the halls of power, and in communities to halt bigotry in its tracks. I've been with the organization for over seven, uh, going on seven and a half years now. And although the organization is based in D.C., I personally am based in San Francisco, California. So you're special counsel for anti-Muslim bigotry. What does that mean for you day to day? Yeah, you know, that's a great question because I have to say no one single day is the same. Um, But broadly, the work that we focus on is really trying to look at across the country, the trends that we see in bigotry. Of course, our focus is on the American Muslim community, but we are also just generally looking at how hate and bigotry are affecting vulnerable communities across the board and how we can challenge that and push back against the trends that we see, whether it's in hate crimes or violence or threats of violence, or if we're talking about more uh, pervasive online bigotry, harassment, and things like that. So there's obviously a large scope of things that could fit under this umbrella of bigotry generally. And what are you finding are the biggest challenges doing this work in 2020? One of the things that sticks out to me often, um, whether it's now in the current situation that we're in or just generally in this work advocating on behalf of vulnerable communities, is that you're often investing a lot of time and energy into a particular issue area or into an advocacy effort or campaign without really seeing the fruits of that labor. And sometimes it can be for years that you're not seeing the change that you're hoping for. Sometimes we're fortunate enough to actually get really important victories in a very short period of time. And those victories can change the course of entire policies that impact thousands of people. But often you know, we might work on a project or, for example, a piece of legislation that we're advocating for on the Hill, 
and we don't see the progress we're hoping for. And that can be uh, discouraging. It can be difficult to overcome those challenges. But I think the way I personally deal with that is remembering to celebrate every victory we achieve, no matter how big or small it may be. And I think recognizing that these efforts do take time and it's because we're all working towards very difficult but achievable goals that you know really require the hard work that has been going into the efforts for years and and they probably will continue for years to come that's fascinating because sometimes it does feel like the we do the work and th- then th- right the next day there's a new horror to face and and is anything getting done and it's it, it sounds like from your end it's this patience of things are happening it just doesn't always happen quickly yeah exactly and that's so true you know especially when we're doing work that is often very responsive to the news cycle because just the nature of what we're doing, especially under uh, the current administration and in this era, we do have to be prepared for the next horror story or the next horrible policy that is affecting the community. And that just means we quickly move past whatever we celebrated our victory for yesterday and we have to be prepared for the next day. For me personally, uh, and I think I speak for others as well, that it feels like we're failing. We're mm-hmm. feeling we're failing those who um, need us not to fail, um, those of us who care and fight for justice. So, are we? <laughs> and what should we be doing? <laughs> yeah, you know, I think that's that's a question that we have to s- grapple with as we face the new challenges ahead. And it's also something that I think about in the context of you know, we often as an organization, because we're constantly thinking about what we're working on, our goals, and, you know, planning out the next steps in a particular project, we're often thinking, what more can we be doing? And what do we need to do that we aren't doing already? Or what is the, what is the greatest need for our community right now? And, you know, this COVID-19 situation is actually a really great example of how we've had to revisit and kind of go back to the drawing board at times to say, what are the needs of the community? And I think recognizing that organizations are doing really, really important work, but they may not be able to do everything is really important. And one thing that we've prioritized at Muslim Advocates is really trying to focus on the things that we are good at and things that we believe that we can actually make progress on. And so that means that sometimes we're not going to be the best spokesperson on a particular issue area. When it comes to bigotry, we feel like we're really comfortable in that space and we have a lot of experience working on these issues, but we may not be the best person to uh, group to talk to about a you know another issue area that might also be affecting our community as well and so i think you know it is a question to grapple with are we doing everything we can can we do more can we be talking to more people and getting more insight but i also recognize that many of us are stretched really really thin not just as individuals but also in our organizations and so knowing what we're good at and trying to make progress on those things, I think is a really effective strategy for moving things forward as a whole. So talk to us about um, hate crimes right now as they stand against Muslims. Thank you for raising this question. You know, hate crimes targeting American Muslims have been a serious concern, I think, for many years now. 
prior to 2019, hate crimes against Muslims were actually on the rise for three consecutive years. And in one year, which was 2016, they actually increased 67% in just that one year timeframe. The challenge with hate crimes across the board, this is not just for American Muslims, but just in general, they are categorically underreported by victims. And that's actually true of crime in general, but it's even more so the case with hate crimes due to fear of retaliation or of repeat victimization. So there's also that element to it, which is we know the numbers, but we know that those numbers are a underrepresentation of what's really going on. There's also a history of the American Muslim community having serious concerns about inappropriate surveillance of their communities across the country by law enforcement. So that creates another barrier for victims who may actually want to report and come forward, but they don't feel comfortable doing so. And where does the uh, Muslim ban stand right now? What initiatives are you taking in that regard with uh, Muslim advocates? and, And what can you tell us about that right now? Yeah, so the Muslim ban has been such a significant priority for us at Muslim Advocates ever since really the first iteration, the first day the ban was signed into law by this administration. We had been right from the get-go fighting the ban in the courts, and we were providing resources to the communities that were impacted using fact sheets and translating them into various languages so that individuals who might be affected would have resources for understanding how it could impact them and how it could unfortunately keep them apart from their families. And, you know, we're now over three years from the original version of the Muslim ban where families, thousands of families have been separated. And I know that that very much mirrors what we're seeing in other immigration policies as well. In addition to what we were doing in the courts with our litigation efforts, we also worked for over a year and a half on a really important bill called the No Ban Act that was actually introduced last year with the goal of repealing the ban and also making it very difficult for any future president to enact such a ban at really at any point that focused on religion. So unfortunately, uh, as we know with the current condition of our country, congressional priorities have shifted. And I think that's rightfully so because the congressional representatives need to focus on how to protect the American people during this medical pandemic. But we're not really sure when other legislative priorities are going to begin to come back to the forefront. We're hopeful that when things start to settle and when Congress can go back to functioning at their full capacity with other legislative priorities at the forefront, that we can then resurface you know, the legislation that prioritizes repealing the ban. And what do you think normal, everyday people can do to help this situation when we're all still dealing with, you know, the uh, unprecedented and unknown territory that we're in right now with this pandemic and will be likely weeks to come when this episode airs, is what can be done to continue finding the space to move this work forward, in your opinion? That's a fantastic question. I think recognizing that what we do in our day-to-day lives is so important to shaping experiences of our neighbors, our friends, our communities, is I think holding the weight of that. And really a lot of these things start small. They start local. So if it means, you know, 
in this new era where we're connecting virtually and finding all these ways to support one another, that may also mean just checking in on one another about these issues at the local level, starting conversations that are really important to us that we may not be able to have in normal settings. Like for example, I'm in California. I often travel to DC to be part of conversations related to bigotry and so on and so forth. But because I'm not able to do that right now, I'm still trying to find ways to connect with people and learn about their experiences. And that may mean focusing on local, focusing on uplifting the stories of the great work that's being done in this time that we can then build on once hopefully things go back to normal. Do you think that one-on-one relationship building, do you think it works or does it just come down to large systematic change that is necessary through the courts? How are they connected for you? Are they connected? They absolutely are connected. And, you know, in many ways, I think the one-on-one relationships are kind of where they start. They're incredibly valuable for our day-to-day. As I was mentioning, you know, the day-to-day experiences are shaped by that in our communities. And there's so much important work that happens on the ground in those one-on-one relationships that I think we, we shouldn't discount the importance of the relationships, of those relationships and actually driving change. Ultimately, I think in order for us to see a dramatic shift in the way vulnerable communities are targeted by discrimination and bigotry across the board, we do need systematic change to sustain it long term. But I think we could actually look to the local organizing efforts that have been successful in collaboration, in partnerships, and they're actually getting results. We should be looking to those as models. And what's the thing that makes you bang your head every day? Oh, <laughs> well, I think that unfortunately we're living in a time where bigotry is essentially part of the mainstream in our society. And so what makes me bang my head every day is just the sheer kind of acceptance that has overtaken our society where it's completely okay to comment or call out people based on their race, religion, sexual orientation, so on and so forth. In at a time where this is one this goes back to what I was saying before, you know, we would think that I started this job almost seven and a half years ago. I would hope that we had made some progress. And in some ways it feels like we've regressed instead of making progress on that front in particular. So that's one of the things that frustrates me a lot about the space that we're working in. But, you know, it then it also serves as a really, really strong reminder that that's why we need to keep doing the work. And imagine where we would be if you didn't do the work you're doing. Oh, thank you. Next up, after listening to both AJ and Medija, our regular conversation partner, Rabbi Dr. Rachel Mikvah, Chicago Theological Seminary faculty and fellow of Jewish studies, that's a mouthful, sat down to talk with Jihad Turk. Turk is president of Bayan Islamic College. Bayan and CTS recently partnered to offer deep and diverse interreligious studies. Here they are. Welcome. I'm Rachel Mikvah. I'm delighted to have as my conversation partner today, Jihad Turk from Bayan, who's in a wonderful partnership with uh, Chicago Theological Seminary, and we're doing amazing work together, and I'm so looking forward to our conversation. Welcome, Jihad. Thank you, Rachel. I'm 
also looking forward to our conversation today. AJ's story is very moving as he tells about his long journey as a Rohingya refugee. I spend a lot of time thinking about the lives of American Muslims, and he's now in Chicago. But there are diverse pressures on Muslim groups around the world. Yeah, I mean, if you follow some uh, Orientalists, uh, one of them wrote a book called What Went Wrong with Islam, and it talks about Islam's bloody borders. And if you look uh, in the, you know, just watch the news, you'll notice that there are a lot of reports about conflict and civil war or war, conflict in general, uh, political violence in places in which there are Muslim majorities or Muslim minorities, places like Myanmar and Burma, like we heard from AJ, but also Yemen and in the heart of the you know Muslim lands, uh, places like Syria and Iraq. So Islam and Muslim populations around the world have had a difficult time in transitioning to modernity and integrating into the world of nation states for a, long, a wide variety of reasons. Right. Well, the legacy of colonialism, you know, is clearly one of those factors that has severely impacted the ability of Muslim majority nations to navigate in the world today. I would say that one of the main factors that colonialism brought to bear on on conflicts that we see around the world today is is a kind of you know, tribalism always existed, but this is a kind of a racialized tribalism and uh, ethnic divisions have been uh, made more severe because of colonialism. And a lot of the, the conflicts that we see around the world in general and in Muslim lands in particular is really centering around uh, different nationalist or ultra-nationalist struggles that are divided along ethnic and racial lines in those places. So absolutely. And the the ways in which ethnicity gets mixed with religion and carving out the us and the them is is severely impacting the Rohingyas and their experience in Myanmar or Burma, as AJ referred to it. Well, I mean, let's just put this in perspective. Myanmar is a Buddhist nation. Buddhism, in the minds of your average American, at least, is the most peaceful religion in the world. And here the, the United Nations declared that this Buddhist nation is undertaking a genocide, genocide against this 2% minority, religious minority population that they are labeling as a, an ethnic mi- minority population. But it's, you know, Time Magazine had a Buddhist monk on the cover saying the new face of terror uh, a few years ago, referring to this, you know, these attacks against the the Rohingya. And it's not just the government and the, the military, but also Buddhist monks from the temples, encouraging people to go and commit these kinds of atrocities against their, their neighbor. And so what I would say, we, 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 what we face in the world today is religious tribalism and uh, where, where people's identities are wrapped up in religion, not the values of those religions, but the the marker that those religions are in terms of which tribe you belong to. And I think that in the United States, our attitudes about religions, especially religions we don't know much about, have always been oversimplified. The idea that Buddhism is always peaceful is as absurd as Islam is inherently violent. We just tend to oversimplify. 
I, I would agree that with the rise of nationalism and ultra nationalism, we find you know religion really at, at the nexus of of conflicts around the world. So not just Myanmar, but look at India uh, with Modi. Right. He is promoting a kind of a Hindu ultra nationalism, and you know that that praises the 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 works of of Adolf Hitler as someone who was trying to purify his the race of his country uh, against those uh, who don't belong. And this is the spirit that he's bringing to contemporary India, and who is the target of. Uh, of the violence that is being uh, perpetuated is the the Muslim minority. Now, when we talk about a minority in India, we're talking about 1.2 billion people, somewhere between 12 and 15% are Muslim. We're talking about 200 plus million people. So this is not just like a a small number of people that are going to be affected by this uh, increasing violence that we're seeing in India. And and I can go on and on with a, a wide variety of other countries in which religious nationalism or I call it religious tribalism is being used to uh, pit one group against the other, a dominant group against a minority group, or sometimes the opposite. So AJ was obviously extraordinarily grateful to be in Chicago. It's been a tremendous liberation for him to be in the United States. And we can celebrate that the U.S. has a history of absorbing refugees, even if the current administration is undermining that legacy in multiple ways. But we still have substantial problems with anti-Muslim bias and Islamophobia. That's why organizations like Muslim advocates need to exist. Um, And I think it would be helpful if we talk a bit about the ways in which anti-Muslim bias and Islamophobia manifest and unfold here so that we can we can help people equip themselves to confront the hate. Well, you know, Dali Mogahed at the Institute for Social Policy and Understanding uh, put out some research, which I thought was striking. She, she says in her research, uh, she shows that anti-Muslim hate crimes spike, not paralleling international terrorist attacks or even domestic ones but rather political cycles. Right. When, when there is a presidential run, for example, and this, this became most abundantly clear to me when in 2008, President Obama was running for office and some strategic thinkers from the Republican Party decided to paint Obama as a Muslim and then start using that as a wedge issue to scare people about Islam and Muslims Hundreds of millions of dollars was pumped into this propaganda campaign. You would think after 2001 was when there would be this huge investment in making people afraid of Islam, but it really wasn't then. It was when they realized that it could be used for partisan advantage that the money started pouring in to the Islamophobia industry. But when the political strategists realized that they can really create a wedge issue then they tried scaring people to the pool. I remember there was an SNL skit uh, around that same time in 2008 that basically said there was a mosque being built near ground zero. And so, you know, it's a victory lap for the the terrorists. And at that ground zero mosque, there's also going to be a free immigration clinic for, you know, Latino uh, immigrants. <laughs> and 
they're going to do LGBT weddings there. <laughs> so it was like, you know, and then it said at the, at the end, brought to you by the, you know, Republican National Committee. Right. So, and an abortion clinic, too. Yeah, that's right. So it was kind of like wrapping all of the wedge issues into one and scaring, you know, scaring the, the Dickens out of folks who, who, you know, might go to the polls and vote Republican. So it really has become a, a partisan political issue that it should not it should not be. Another governmental manifestation of anti-Muslim bias has unfolded. Again, this is funded and driven by the Islamophobia industry is this anti-Sharia campaign which has lost a little steam in the last year or so, but I'm not sure we're, we've seen the end of it. Over 200 bills were introduced since 2010, and about 20 have been enacted. And it's a completely absurd campaign, right? We already have laws on the books that say no foreign law can override American law. It's completely unnecessary. And it's really just designed to make people think you know, that somehow there is this Muslim conspiracy to take over America. And, you know, I, I don't know what its impact really is on daily lives of Muslims in states that have enacted the laws. I, I don't think that it really does, but it, I think there's this insidious danger in continuing to feed fear of Islam as a threat. Well, yeah. I mean, the places like Oklahoma that did uh, adopt an anti-Sharia constitutional amendment that I think was subsequently overturned by the Supreme Court. But people went out to vote because they were scared that if they don't vote for this anti-Sharia bill, then you know Muslims are somehow going to take over Oklahoma uh, and the legislature. And I mean, Muslims make up less than one percent of the population, probably even smaller than that in Oklahoma. But what it does do is it creates genuine fear of, uh, about Islam and Muslims. And, you know, so many communities there have faced, you know, their mosques have been burned. Communities have been, you know, people have been, they faced hate crimes. So there are, of course, ways to think about confronting the hate that we can do as communities, not only as individuals, right? We have various efforts that we've seen around arts projects and dialogue projects and studying together and community service. I know you've been involved in a lot of this kind of work. You want to talk about some of it? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm based here in Southern California and we have one of the largest homeless populations in the country, if not the largest. And so our mosque that I used to be the imam of was right in the middle of, of that area. And so we one of the first things that we that we undertook in 2005 when I first came on board was to create a food pantry network of faith communities, the local synagogue and a dozen churches, something called HopeNet. And we opened up a pantry every day of the week, a different uh, house of worship would open up a pantry. We'd get food from the Los Angeles Regional Food Bank and we would just distribute it. But the best part is that we could help each other out. Like we would go to the synagogue and they would come to our uh, house of worship at our mosque and volunteer and get to know one another in the process of serving humanity, of manifesting the values of our faith in dealing with, with the facing, you know, challenges, real challenges on the ground. And I think that's the best way we can really get to know one another. And I, I would encourage after COVID, we're actually still doing this during COVID times. We were limited to 10 volunteers, but we still get 300 plus 
families that come every Saturday to receive. Right, the need uh, is only growing, right? It's only growing. Yeah. And so, but this is a great opportunity to really get to know your neighbor. And I would encourage people to find ways you can serve humanity together because that's really what our faiths teach us to do anyway. And we'll just do it together and get to know each other in the process. Thank you so much, Jihad, for being with us on Our Seven Neighbors. Such a treat to get to talk with you. It was my honor, and I feel like I'm the neighbor right next door, not even seven houses down. (laughs) (laughs) And so the work continues. Thank you for joining our conversation and meeting your neighbors. Many thanks to AJ, Madiha, and Jihad for joining us on this episode of Our Seven Neighbors. Find out more about the Rohingya Cultural Center at rccchicago.org. That's rccchicago.org. Check them out. Muslim Advocates can be found at muslimadvocates.org. And more about us at Chicago Theological Seminary at ctschicago.edu. Too many to remember? Find all the links at our7neighbors.com. Please help and donate to these organizations in any way you can. Do you have a comment? thought, question, or maybe story of your own. Call us. We may play your comment or answer your question on future episodes. Let's be in conversation together. The number to call is 773-896-2529. That's 773-896-2529. Or you can leave us a note on our Facebook page at the Interreligious Institute. We look forward to hearing from you. Next episode, our focus is on intersectionality. Should be a good one. Join us then for another story, interview, and conversation with your seven neighbors. Talk soon.